turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1. It's page eight, uh, 983 in these pew Bibles. Uh, Andy and I are going to bring a series of uh, messages from the book of Colossians. He did the first one two weeks ago. Uh, on the latter part of chapter 1, I'm going to go back to the first part of chapter 1. Uh, but as you're turning to that, you should know that this was written while Paul was in prison, though we're not exactly sure where he was at the time, whether he was imprisoned in Rome or elsewhere. This is the only church he wrote to he never met. He had never met these uh, Christians in the city of Colossae, uh, and so that's the only letter that we have where he had, he had not been with them. And I'll tell you more about that in a few moments. Hear God's word beginning in verse 1 through verse 8 of Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also do does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So ends the reading of God's, God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us that we do not live by uh, physical bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we come with uh, hungry souls. We ask that you would nurture us, nourish us in this time together. None of us are here by accident. We pray for those that perhaps that do not yet know Christ, that that would change over the next few moments. And we pray in his name. Amen. In 2,000 years, Christianity has grown from a small handful of followers of Jesus to be the professed faith of approximately a third of the population of our planet. It has spread more widely and it has become more deeply rooted among more people groups and nationalities than any other religion in the history of the world. And what's interesting is this is studied even by secular historians is that even through history, as it has been persecuted and attacked, it is extremely resilient and comes back often stronger. Well, how did this begin? How did this begin in Paul's day and in these New Testament churches? The basic claims of the early Christians, the basic claim was that Christ was the promised Messiah, the one who is to be sent by God, who would be the substitute, the lamb who would die as a substitute for our sins. And that through faith in him, we become new creatures in Christ. And they believed, these early Christians, and these early Christ followers, they were called Christians as a term of derision, but they believed theirs was a better way because it offered forgiveness of sin, it offered peace with God, it offered hope for the future, it offered a revolutionary, unheard-of ethical code, which was to love one another. 
And it also offered the power through the Holy Spirit to live up to that ethical code. And so the believer's first loyalty was to Jesus Christ, and therefore they practiced this ethic of love even toward their enemies, as Christ had taught. They emphasized concern for others over concern for self. And so many of the early converts to the Christian faith were attracted to it by the love that they saw among followers of Jesus. But you also have to understand that the reason it spread so quickly, so what some of the reasons, is that it was simple. It had simplicity, it had community, it had evangelism, and it had love. What I mean by simplicity is there is no, even within the church, it's not a complicated organization. It can fit into almost any culture, really any culture of the world, any nationality of the world, any political structure of the world. The church can fit into that in its simplicity. It also had very easy-to-understand basic doctrines. It was not a mystery religion that you had to go through various levels of knowledge before you could understand the basics of it. It financed the ministry through sacrificial personal giving. No one was required to give anything, but the heart was appealed to to give out of compassion. And the Christian community made no distinctions, distinctions on race or nationality or cultural status or whether a person was a slave or free. The time in the New Testament, we think over 60% of the Roman population were slaves. It made no distinction there. And so this sense of community among these early Christians was nurtured through frequent assemblies for the worship of God, for learning and being taught by the apostles and the early uh, uh, church fathers, we call them. They also may, met regularly to celebrate a meal together that was called a love feast. And they were aggressively evangelistic. They wanted to pass on and to communicate to others this newfound faith in Jesus. Especially they wanted to communicate it to those who were less fortunate. And so as faith in Christ expanded to more and more people, so did opportunities for false teaching and heresy to come into it. And when we get to this letter, we find out that false teaching, you might say, is at the door of the church. It is not yet permeated into the core of the believers, but it is on the horizon. It is almost there. And so the Apostle Paul, from his prison cell, writes this letter to them, and it's really written because of the threat of false teaching, but he doesn't attack the false teaching directly. Instead, as Andy mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, he, he shows them the preeminence of Jesus. This is called the most Christ-centered of all the letters of the New Testament. He shows them the preeminence of Christ because if we understand the truth, then we're able to recognize error. And so that is his purpose. Let's look at the first few verses today. He gives in verse 1 a typical greeting. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. You know his name was Saul. That was his Hebrew name. Uh, and yet he called himself Paul since he was uh, commissioned by God to be the missionary to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. And the, uh, Genta, the Greek form of Saul is Paul. Uh, so he identifies 
so that they understand that. Highly educated, zealous, if you remember, for the Jewish faith, dramatically converted to faith in Christ on a mission to persecute Christians. I mean, that's really odd. I knew a guy who was converted. I'm going to date myself. I knew a guy who was converted in a Van Halen concert. This is even... This is even more bizarre, you might say, than that. I mean, he is, he is carrying out, you wonder, I just know a picture, David Lee Roth from the front said, God can't save anyone, especially anybody at one of our concerts. And the guy, the guy put his faith in Christ on the spot. It's really bizarre. It only gets worse, and I must get back to the text. <laughs> so he, uh, he was on a mission to persecute Christians. He's converted Converted on the very road that we read about, I was reading about last night, where these refugees from Syria are traveling out of there. This road to Damascus was the very road where Saul was converted. And he says he's an apostle there, as I continue in the verse, he's an apostle by the will of God. It was not something he chose. The word apostle, by the way, simply means one who is sent. It's like a messenger. Here, you take this message to that group over there, the Greek word would have been an apostle. They mean something more formal in the Bible. There were just 13, and it was an office. It was an office to which God appointed 13 different men. And one of the criteria, and there were several, but one criteria to be an apostle was you had to have seen the risen Jesus. Well, for Saul, that was on the road to Damascus. And so he mentions this to them. He did not choose to be an apostle. He did not run for office. He did not campaign to be nominated or purchase it. It was by the will of God. And with him is a co-laborer named Timothy. Timothy served as the pastor in the city of Ephesus, but he was Paul's protege, and he was a longtime friend. And so they are together, and he's writing this to them, as I said, from prison. Verse 2, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Uh, not using saint the way we use it today, like some kind of uh, enshrined uh, true believer, godly person from the past. We never find that use of it in the Bible. That's a distortion of the word. The, the word in the Bible just means one who is set apart, a separated one. So all believers, if you're trusting in Christ today, you are a saint. You've been set apart. That's how it's used here. And he calls them also brothers because he, like they, have been adopted into God's family. And so now they are brothers as we are, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he calls them in Christ at Colossae. This is a very important phrase. Stick with me for a moment. I want to give you the background of this phrase uh, in Christ because it's very important. The Apostle Paul uses it often in the New Testament. When he would preach to unbelievers, he would exhort them to believe in Jesus. But the Greek word that he used, and I'm no Greek scholar, but I labored over it for about three years in graduate school. The Greek word was believe into Jesus. Believe into Jesus. Now the idea is if you were to walk up to this building from Mulberry Street and you were to stand on the steps that are in front, outside the door, and you would stand there, you would be outside the building. But then if you walked through the door and came down this aisle, you would say, now I have come into the building, therefore I am in the building. When Paul would preach, and what he's saying here is that you and I are admonished, believe into Jesus. 
Once you believe in him, you put your trust in him, then you, are not, you have come into him, you are in Christ. Christ is in you, you are in Christ, and the Bible, well, theological books call that the mystical un union. A mystical union between the believer and Christ. And so God sees us as being in Christ, all the benefits of Christ, the blessings of Christ are also in us because we are in him. This is no small thing for him to address them as brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. If you're a believer in Christ today, then you are into him. You have been moved into him, and you are now in him, and he is in you. There in Colossae, only letters I mentioned earlier in the New Testament written to a church Paul never visited. It was a small town by the time he wrote to this. It had had its golden days many years before. 500 years earlier in history, it was called a great city. By the New Testament times, it was called a small town. It had had its heyday. And now there were two other nearby towns, uh, uh, Laodicea and Hierapolis, and they were nearby. It would be like being a suburb of a very growing area. And this was a, a dying area. And here's why I want you to know this. Years ago, I was auditing a, a doctoral ministry class at Reform Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. There were about 20 people in the class. None of us knew each other before we arrived there. So during the five-day class, during the breaks, you'd often get to know somebody you didn't know. And I went outside the building where we had a little bit of a break, and I'm talking to this African-American fellow who tells me he lives in Memphis. He works for the Southern Baptist Convention. He works in the, in the uh, at that time, he worked in the department that did demographic studies throughout the U.S. as to where they wanted to plant churches. Does that make sense? Where they wanted to start a new church. And while we're talking, he says, where are you from? Where do you live? I said, well, I'm a pastor in Macon, Georgia. And he gave me one of these looks. Macon, Georgia. I know all about Macon, Georgia. I said, really, what do you know? And this is all he said. Nobody wants to change in Macon, Georgia. I didn't know what to make of that. It was such a comprehensive statement. I mean, it, it, in other words, we aren't planting, a, we're not going to waste our time planting a church in Macon, Georgia. Now, not long ago, I was talking to a person who directs the church planting for our denomination in the northern part of Georgia, which will plant uh, from Atlanta, just south of Atlanta, and all the northern area, mainly around Atlanta. They will plant at least four new churches a year. If you, if you don't know that term, church planting, that's where you would go in, literally start from scratch, try to lead people to Christ, form a group, and then over time become a particularized church. And I said, and I was asking about the Eagles Landing area. Since we all become familiar with that, <laughs> unwillingly so, every time we drive to Atlanta. And I said, is there a PCA church there, Presbyterian Church America Congregation? He said, well, there was one, but it failed, and now there's, uh, there's another one that's, that's trying to be revived. I don't know the current situation, and if you're from there, you know more about it than I do. But I said, let me ask you a question. When y'all are studying where to put a new church, what are the criteria you look for? What demographic things do you look for as to where you target something? He said, number one, without question, always growing area, a growing population. Are you seeing why I'm saying this now? 
You see, I mean, uh, we move around in Macon, but we're not on any kind of burgeoning growth line going up. About 156,000 people since consolidation. So it said on Wikipedia, so it has to be true. Uh, so nobody wants to change. Growing area. I, uh, I can appreciate the demographic studies, but if that had been true, this never would have happened in Colossae because it was not a growing area. It was a dying area. In fact, not long after this letter was written, there was an earthquake that destroyed it. It's never been seriously excavated by archaeologists. It's kind of like, why? There was nothing important there. There's still a Colossae, but it's nothing like if you want to go to Ephesus or some of these places where there have been great archaeological work done and see these ruins. God chooses where he'll work and when he'll work. And in this city, as we'll see shortly, there was a man named Epaphras. Epaphras traveled 100 miles to the east to Ephesus, and he heard Paul preach the gospel. Paul ministered there for two years. Epaphras probably was converted during that time, took the message back to Colossae, taught them, saw people come to Christ, and now there's a church there. It shouldn't have happened, you might say. The demographics, they maybe didn't want to change. It wasn't a growing area. God does what he will, when he will, where he will, and he really doesn't ask us about it. And so there's hope when we see that, which happened here. Let's look at the text for the few moments that we have, verses uh, 3 and following. He, just a few observations. First, he says in verse 3 that we pray for them. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you. That It's a uh, practice. He and Timothy prayed for these believers in Colossae. They, they did not know them personally, but they were praying for them. Paul was doing for them what Paul requested others do for him. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he said, Brothers, pray for us. He doesn't tell us all they prayed for. They probably thanked God for their faith and their hope and their love. That was. They probably prayed that Christ would be preeminent. And I want to express to you, many of you have prayed, I was just told, Sunday school, and thanks to the kids. So many kids prayed for me and my wife over the past four months while I was away. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Over a hundred of you wrote cards and letters. It's going to take me a... I'm slow responding. You may never hear from me. Don't take it personally. Anyway, I've, I've received that. So they pray for them. But look at verse 3. We pray with thankfulness to God the Father. When someone gives you a gift, who do you thank for? If someone gives you a gift... Let's just be hypothetical. Let's hypothetically say... Uh, something like your pastor had a birthday a week and a half ago. Just something hypothetical like that. And let's hypothetically assume that it was a birthday that left the decade of the 50s and turned to the 60s. And that, hypothetically speaking, of course, and let's assume hypothetically you said, I want to give a birthday gift to my pastor who I've not seen since two years ago. And perhaps you thought, you know how you can go on Amazon and have gifts and you can pick the age span? Have you seen that? We've got 12 grandkids. You better believe in December, I'm looking on there and say, what do you buy a three-year-old? What do you buy a four-year-old? And I'll have these, they'll say, well, you can buy this, this toy fits that age. I don't know if they go up to 50, but if they did, there's probably a telephone with big numbers on it, you know, there's probably a, probably a, a gift subscription to AARP magazine or, but uh, I really hope somebody comes through with one of those uh, metal detectors to use at the beach anyway. But if someone did, would, 
would I go up to a complete stranger and say, hey, thank you for the gift? They say, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't give you anything. Or I go to another stranger and say, hey, thank you for the gift. No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. We thank the person who gives the gift. Who does Paul thank as he prays for the Christians in Colossae? God. He recognizes that their faith, their hope, their love, those are the three things he mentions in the, this paragraph. He thanks God for those. If you have faith in Christ today, if you have a growing desire to follow him, thank God. It's not because you're necessarily smarter or brighter or wiser than someone else. That is God's work. And so we don't thank ourselves. We don't pat ourselves on the back. Oh, look how spiritual I am. I desire to follow Christ today. No, thank you, Lord. Thank you that desire is even there. It is your, it is your work in me. Of this hope, it goes on in verse 5, it said they had heard in the gospel. The gospel of truth probably said that to separate it from the message that was coming in from these false teachers that is untrue. And they heard it from Epaphras. They heard it and believed. We heard earlier in the service the Romans 10 passage, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, what did they hear from Ephesus? I mean, from Epaphras. What did they hear from Epaphras that he heard in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus? Well, here's what I think they heard. Around here, we call it the bad news, good news. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel in a nutshell is that God created our first set of ancient parents, Adam and Eve, long ago. And he made them in his image, and he gave them not only the five senses we have, like taste and touch and sight and hear and smell, but they also had a sixth sense, a spiritual sense. There was a dimension to their life that enabled them literally to walk and talk with God. They loved God because, like us, they were created to do so, but something happened. God had given them a prohibition not to eat of a certain fruit off a certain tree, and they did it. They disobeyed God. They broke his commandment. And as a result of that, they died. We call that sin to miss the mark. They died. See, sin doesn't make us bad. It makes us dead. So they weren't dead physically. They died spiritually. And that spiritual awareness, that dimension was lost. They suffered the consequences of their crime against God. But even in punishing them, there in the opening chapters of Genesis, he promises a redeemer, someone that he will send later to redeem. You and I are born where Adam and Eve ended up. We are born into this world spiritually dead. We don't have that spiritual life, that spiritual sense that they were created with. And so we have these two problems of sin and death. Sin and death. We've committed crimes against God, and he says the punishment or the wages of that is death. So it's just natural for us to think that, well, I can bridge that gap with God by doing things. I can try harder, and God will see my good intentions, and he will accept me. He'll see my motives, and even when I'm wrong, he'll know what my motivation is, and he will accept me. But the truth, according to the Bible, is there's nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. All the good deeds in the world will not do away with our problems of sin and death. So that's the bad news. Now the good news. Thankfully, God is also loving and merciful, and he sent as a substitute his son to take the punishment for us. Jesus 
became a man. No other substitute would do. He lived a perfect life. He said, I came down from heaven. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. Then he allowed himself to be arrested, tried, beaten, nailed to a Roman cross, and he did so as a substitute for others. And while he was on that cross, God took my sin and he placed them on him and he punished my sins in him. And Christ made a full and complete payment, not partial, but full and complete. He died on that cross, and this was the greatest demonstration of God's love. His body was taken down from a cross. It was placed in a tomb, and his enemies thought, well, that'll take care of that. That's the last we'll see of him. But three days later, he physically rose from the dead. He rose from the grave because death could no longer hold him, because he had paid the penalty. And over a period of 40 days, he, peer, he appeared to his followers, several hundred people over that period of time. And before he ascended into heaven, he told his followers to go into all the world and to tell people about this gift of eternal life that's made available through Christ. So I ask you what Epaphras would have asked or told the people back in Colossae, have you received that gift of eternal life? To do so, it's rather simple. You believe that Jesus was God the Son, that he was perfect, and that he died in your place. That you cannot make yourself right with God through your own efforts, through your own attempts. That when he died, God the Father put your sins on Jesus and punished those in your place. Now you turn from going your own way, living according to your strictly your own desires, and you turn toward him and living for him. The Bible calls that repentance. And when that happens, you're enabled to love God. And that's why the Bible says if anyone is in, new, in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now that was the gospel that the Colossians heard from Epaphras. Now, they probably heard it in Aramaic, or to some degree in Greek. But how did the gospel come to them? Through a man, through a person. God uses people to change people. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you are here today because someone brought you? Don't, don't raise your hand. How many of you are here believing in Christ because someone invested in your life maybe recently, maybe years ago, and they took time to explain to you, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a grandparent, maybe it was a relative, maybe it was a youth pastor, maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was just a friend at work. And they talked to you about Christ. They were, the, they were an Epaphras, you might say, in your life. So Paul refers to him in verses 7 and 8 as our beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ. He's trustworthy. Says nothing about fabulous Preacher, teacher, multi-gifted. He just says he's faithful. God spreads his word through people like you and me. Now, over the past almost four months, uh, Barbara and I visited a lot of churches around the southeast. I wanted to, as a pastor, I rarely get to visit other churches. And there are a number of churches I've known about for years but never had the opportunity to worship there. So we traveled around to different cities and most Sundays, sometimes we leave on Saturday night, depending how far off it was, and we'd go there. And Twelve of the churches I'd never stepped foot in before. Uh, most were of our denomination. But I, I've said something to you. I've quoted or paraphrased through the years something that Tom Rayner with the Southern Baptist Convention, who's with Lifeway, 
has written about numerous times, and that is that in America, of those people who never attend church, when surveyed, the majority, the majority say, I would go if someone asked me to go. Now, here's what I learned in these visits. And it made, and I began about halfway through the summer, I began to understand that comment from Tom Rayner. To go to a strange place and walk into a church building where you don't know anybody, it is a nerve wracking experience. Especially if you're somewhat introspective, not introspective, introverted and introspective. <laughs> she fits, right? All right. So to go in, am I sitting in somebody's? We were in a 2,000-seat auditorium, and I turned to the woman behind us, and I said, am I in somebody's seat? I didn't know. I knew a man who went to a mega church in Atlanta, and no one was in the room. He got there so early. And 2,000 empty seats. He sat down about right in there, and a woman came walking down the aisle and tapped him on the shoulder and said, you're in my seat. <laughs> no one was there. He said, I'm sorry, and he moved. I mean, I didn't know what's going to happen. Are they going to make you stand up? You know, they're going to force you to write a check for their... I mean, I don't know what was going to happen. You know, handle snakes, roll around on the floor, charm. So it gave me an empathy. If you walked in here today cold turkey and you don't know anybody, my hat's off to you. Bless you. Uh, Because that can be an intimidating experience. However, in one church in Greenville, South Carolina, we knew a couple, and they said, meet us at 9.15 at this particular place, and we'll... All the difference in the world. We, you know, they knew what, we didn't know what was going on, but they knew what was going to go on, and suddenly I felt very comfortable. uh, The whole experience changed. What's my point? Why not decide for the remaining part of 2015 that that empty seat that may be next to you, why don't you pray and ask God to give you maybe a couple of opportunities to have somebody sitting there that never goes to church? Because you invite, not only just said, hey, come to church, you said, I'll, I'll pick you up or I'll meet you out here or I'll, I'll meet you, I'll show you where to park and I'll, we'll walk in together. And, and if they have kids, it's just multiplied of how complicated it becomes if they don't know anything about that. So God spreads his word through people. He spread it there through Epaphras. Last of all, an amount of time is verses 5 and 6. He refers to the gospel bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world and among them. Paul knew the gospel was powerful. In Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Several of us here have been to Cuba on mission trips for the past 15 years, uh, mission trips of different types. And uh, I was reading By Faith magazine that just came out this week, By Faith. If you don't get the paper copy, you can go online and read the article. It has about an eight-page article on Cuba and the Christian movement in Cuba, and it's so encouraging and we had seen God's work down there that was truly amazing back years ago. But here is what now is becoming quite clear. The government has been very whimsical through the years. Sometimes you could church, build church buildings, sometimes you couldn't. But for several years, it's been illegal to build church buildings. So the regular church is filled up. And now the island is covered with house churches. You know how many? 40,000. 40, 
thousand house churches. If you're reading about what's going on with the Syrian refugees in Germany and how many Muslims are coming there and professing faith in Christ in the churches, unprecedented. Now, the critics say, well, they're doing that so they can get become, get, uh, I forget the term, like political asylum so they can't be sent back because they'll be put to death if they're sent back. So yeah, it may be pragmatic. But even the pastors are saying, even if just a portion of it is genuine, it's still remarkable. It's more converts than they've seen in, 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 a, in a long, long time. Just remember Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. It's true in Colossae. It's true in Macon. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that we are gathered here. If, in a crowd this size, there's a possibility there's someone that walked in who doesn't yet know Jesus, and we pray that they might see what early Christians saw, the simplicity of the message. And there's something inside of us that wants to, to complicate it, to add to it. And it's just believe in him that he paid for our sins and trust in him. So we pray that you might even grant that faith as a gift right now. And we pray that you'd cause us to see the urgency and the brevity of life and the urgency to get the gospel out of how you can use us, even us, if we're just faithful, maybe not too gifted, maybe not celebrities, but care enough about people to even invite them to hear the, the word of truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take your order of service. You'll see the uh, words to the last verse of Come Thou Almighty King. Please stand. Receive the benediction. This from the book of Jude. The last verse of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, in the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, power, now and forevermore. Amen.